I'm Tony Collins, and this is the Progressive Rugby League Podcast. Ah, yes. Progressive Rugby League. Yes, Tony's right. Hello, everyone. John O'Duncan here, welcoming you back to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Good to see you. You're looking well. You're glowing. Look, when Rugby League was suspended in both hemispheres in March, Big Al and I started to think about other kinds of episodes we could do and the interviews we could possibly conduct. I'd always wanted to get Professor Tony Collins on the show, but I didn't really know where to start and what the focus might be. His breadth of work on the interface of sport, social and cultural history simultaneously inspired and daunted me but you know what they say about unprecedented times. So I got in touch. I didn't really have a plan of attack. I just sort of said, G'day, Tony. Love your work. I'd love to get you on the show one day to talk about you, the life of a sports historian, etc. And Tony kindly got back to me and said, Sure, we can talk about whatever you like. And by the way, I've got a new book coming out soon. I said, Well, that's just beautiful, isn't it? Dilemma solved. So here we are. Me, John O'Duncan in Sydney, and from Leeds, Tony Collins, historian, emeritus professor at De Montfort University, award-winning author of seminal titles such as Rugby League in 20th Century Britain, Rugby's Great Split and How Football Began, host of the incomparable Rugby Reloaded podcast, and a man busily putting together the finishing touches on his highly anticipated latest work, Rugby League, A People's History. Tony Collins, a very warm welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's great to be on it at last. Thank you so much, Tony. Now, a big congratulations on the book. I feel very lucky to have received a sneak peek. And it's a fascinating and at times quite thrilling ride through the history of rugby league in Britain and beyond. But before we get to the book, I'd love to know a bit about your relationship with rugby league. Born and raised in Hull, I believe. Has it been a lifelong love affair? Strictly platonic? On again, off again? Has it been your crutch, your rock, your mistress, your frenemy? Give us a sense. Probably all of those things. <laughs> I was born into the game. As you say, I was born in Hull. My father took me to watch, well, to watch Hull Dockers originally before we ever got to Hull Kingston Rovers. Mm. When I was eight years old, so it's 1969, so I've just celebrated 50 years as a fan. <laughs> but his dad took him to watch Rovers in the early 1940s, and his dad took him before the First World War. So it's not so much a sport, it's just part of the everyday fabric of life. And to some extent, despite the fact that I, obviously I write on the sport, I don't watch a lot of other sport, but rugby league is just part of the it's the food and drink of everyday cultural life but the weird thing is that that's actually not why I write about it the reason why I write about sport is because it's a fascinating way of looking at historical questions of looking at society in a way that you don't get with other institutions so I'm kind of lucky that I've managed to make a career out of studying a subject that I love as well as other sports that I have a strong scholarly interest in but I don't really watch as a fan so yeah uh, I'm a leaguey through and through it's in the board Wonderful. Okay, well, let's get to the book, shall we? Tony, Rugby League, A People's History. It's an enticing title. Can you tell our listeners, many of whom I know are salivating at the prospect, what are you trying to achieve with this book? Well, it's a couple of things, really. It's the 125th anniversary of the founding of the game this year, and there were going to be a whole series of celebrations, which obviously, given the situation with the coronavirus pandemic, won't happen in the same way now. Uh, so originally, I thought it's a great time to write a book, and it's also a it's my attempt to bring to a wider public a lot of the stuff that I've done 
as an academic university author. So a couple of books that you mentioned, Rugby's Great Split in Rugby League in 20th Century Britain. Unfortunately, they're published by academic publishers and they cost a huge amount of money because they don't really want to sell to people. They want to make money by selling to university libraries. And so I thought, well, it's about time that both those books should be updated. It's 125th anniversary. And I decided that I'll do a, if you like, a popular version of those two books compressed into one. And I'd go with a publisher who I knew was going to get it into the hands of the people that mattered. So it's Phil Kaplan and Tony Hammond Scratching Shed Publications. Mm. Going to publish it sometime over the summer, we hope. Uh, but obviously, I'll, I'll keep you updated when it comes out. But I mean, in general terms, I've called it a people's history because I want to talk about the game, not just at the top level, about the cup finals and the championship finals and the test matches, but about what makes rugby league rugby league. And Mm. so look at its history going back to the earliest days when it was still all one type of rugby Mm -hmm. through the split, but also look at all the different aspects like the amateur game in Britain. Mm-hmm. the game in the schools, the role that fans have played throughout its history. And as you say, take a quick snapshot look at the game in Australia, New Zealand, France, and to some extent the other places, but kind mm-hmm. of historical basis of the game where it was formed in, in the 50 years after the 1895 split. Mm. Now, Tony, you start the book by busting a myth, and I know it's been a bit of a bugbear of yours and other historians over the years, so let's get this straight once and for all. And it's about the creation story of rugby, which obviously eventually spawned Rugby League. So, Tony, true or false, the game of rugby was created one afternoon at rugby school when a likely lad named William Webb Ellis picked up a ball during a game of soccer football and ran with it and a loping gate to what I can only imagine was the try line of his dreams. Yeah, it's 101% incorrect, There's, uh, if there is such a thing. There's absolutely no evidence of any type whatsoever, direct evidence, hearsay evidence, or circumstantial evidence, that William Webb Ellis was the first person to pick up the ball and run with it. Hmm. The reason for that is obvious, because if you look back at what are now called folk football games, games that were played before the rules of soccer, the rugby codes, etc., were created, then the early football allowed both handling and kicking the ball. It was perfectly uh, normal that the ball would be picked up. Mm. Uh, And in fact, one of the problems that there is is that today, because soccer is so dominant around the world uh, and it's claimed the title football in most countries, Mm. we assume that that is what football always was in the past. And that's not really the case. And when it comes to rugby school, then in the area around rugby, which is in this sort of on the border of the East and West Midlands Mm. in the UK, kind of halfway between Leicester and Coventry, Mm -hmm. there was a long tradition of the villages around the town of rugby, where the school is based, playing these early types of football between each other. So it's clear that the privately educated boys at rugby school, which is a very elite school in Britain, Mm. picked up the way of playing that was played by the ordinary people in the region and you know that's where rugby league's roots lie as well it's i think it was was it yesterday or the day before it was the traditional day for the workington folk football game between uppers and downies which is one of these classic things where Mm. half the men of the town and occasionally half the women in some games played the other half and tried to carry kick or whatever the ball something like three miles from one end of the town to another so yeah William Webb Ellis didn't invent rugby although rugby school were the first school to write down the rules of any type of football in the English public schools and that obviously led to a whole series of codes being formed that were originally based on rugby rules and which are distinguished by being played with an oval ball well fascinating stuff so myth busted now while we're busting myths Are there any that you'd like to bust about the birth of rugby league? Most people know the story, superficially at least, a workers' rights issue essentially. What are the important takeaways you want people to get from rugby league's foundation story? 
well, there's two things really. One that, like old sport, it's actually deeply connected to what was going on in society at the time. To be honest, that's the main reason why I started studying in the first place. Mm. But the development of the class system in Britain started to sharply diverge in the late 19th century. Mm. And there was a very acute class conflict uh, in terms of strikes, in terms of politics and things like that. And rugby was part of that. The other thing, though, which is, is kind of probably more to do with the myth is that rugby league is presented as a, a kind of split a completely new phenomenon away from rugby union mm. and it's not really true because from the very earliest times in the 1870s very early 1880s when rugby became a, a very popular mass spectator sport in the north of England people started to think of it in a different way from the people who ran the rugby football union who controlled the game at the time and that well a they didn't see what was wrong with the players being paid uh, and B, they thought the most important thing about the game, about rugby, was running with the ball, passing the ball and scoring tries. Mm. Whereas traditionally in the game, it had been about scrummaging the forwards and scoring goals. To the extent that at one point, a goal was the only way you could uh, score points in a match. Tries didn't count for anything other than to allow you to have a try at kicking a goal. A good example of this difference is the fact that in the early 1890s, the Rugby Football Union made the value of a drop goal four points. So it was worth more than tries. <laughs> which was something that the Northern clubs didn't like, and it was one of the first things that they changed when they broke away right. after 1895, that mm. tries became more important than goals. And so what Rugby League is, in a sense, it's not a breakaway, it's a different evolutionary path for the rugby type of games, for the way it should be played. And it's as a legitimate version of rugby as Rugby Union. Rugby Union today looks nothing like it was played in the 1890s. Mm. And so we're really just seeing two branches of rugby's evolutionary tree. So, you know, rugby league isn't the breakaway. It isn't bringing something new to rugby. It's developing something that was already deeply in the game ever since it started to be played by the mass of people in the north of England in the 1880s. And that's also true in Australia as well. Mm. And I think also something important to get across from my reading of the book was that while we talk about professionalism, and we'll get to amateurism shortly, but you get the sense from the term professionalism, you get the sense that people were getting paid and they were they were kind of well off. But originally, it was only really to compensate for the loss of income. So you weren't necessarily getting more money than you would have from your normal job. It was just compensating for the loss of income from traveling or maybe injuries as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was this thing called broken time payment, whereby if you had to take time off work to play the game, and at this point, the vast majority of the working population in Britain still worked on Saturday morning. So, mm. you know, if you wanted to travel to an away game or even to a to a home game, then you'd have to miss time off work to travel. You'd have to miss time off work to train as well. And it was originally just a way of compensating for that. Mm. And really, until the 1980s, there are only a very small number of rugby league players anywhere in the world who, who would be described as full-time professionals. Mm. Mostly, rugby league was a, a way of supplementing the income from your regular job, your regular nine-to-five job. So the idea, as you said, the idea that it was the professional form of rugby, or it was the professional code, uh, was really very far from the truth. And to a large extent, the, the title of the professional code was something that was placed upon it by rugby union mm. as it sought to differentiate itself from league. Okay, well, let's get to the crux of the rugby divide, and that's the concept of amateurism. To an Australian millennial like me, an ageing millennial, but a millennial nonetheless, rugby union's historical obsession with amateurism, I mean, I get it conceptually, but to be honest, it all seems a bit ridiculous. But of course, I'm not of those times and I'm not of that place. What was their justification for it and what was it really about? 
Well, the justification was that they felt that rugby, it was more than a game, it was a form of moral education and it was something that you played, not just because it was enjoyable, but because you would also learn the values of, in the 19th century, muscular Christianity, Mm. you know, fighting the good fight, but also sort of gentlemanly middle class values of the British middle classes and you know, the game rugby remains strong in private schools what they call here grammar school well yeah you've got grammar schools in Australia so which is the same in Australia and wherever it's played it's the, one of the core constituencies of rugby is precisely that type of middle class professional classes solicitors bankers the medical profession and, and people like that and so they felt that the game was there to represent their values and promote their values and be something more than just simply a form of entertainment and certainly not a commercial entertainment mm. so that's the way they saw it and you still see that today that you know rugby union still has this idea that it's morally superior to other sports and uh, there's something morally special and distinct about it mm. but in reality that's not what it was really about at all because Rugby, when it first started for its first um, decade and a half of its history, had no rules about amateurism or professionalism at all. It was not an issue. Mm. And it was only when, in the 1880s, that you had the mass influx of industrial working class players and spectators into the game as players and as fans that the the Rugby Football Union in England decided this was a bit of a threat to their control of the game. And certainly by the time you get to the mid-1880s, you you can already see that clubs from the north of England are starting to dominate the game, Mm. starting to be able to challenge the leadership of primarily the southern-based clubs in in English Rugby Union. Mm. The best example of that is that in in 1887, the Rugby Football Union started a county championship tournament. And uh, in the first seven seasons, it was won six times by Yorkshire. And the only season that Yorkshire didn't win it, it was won by Lancashire, where the, you know, rugby was just as much a, a mass spectator sport based in the industrial working class as it was in Yorkshire. So so they, they were frightened that they would lose control. The other thing that happened was that in 1885, soccer decided that it would adopt professionalism because mm. it felt it could control it. And after that, no team of privately educated, university-educated players ever again competed in the FA Cup final. Previously, before professionalism had been legalised, it had been dominated by clubs like the Old Etonians and Old Horovians and people like that. And the leaders of Rugby Union felt that this was a warning to them that if they allowed professionalism, then their game would also be taken over by northern working class clubs. Mm. And so they decided in 1886 that to make rugby an amateur sport. So it's really, although it was justified by all reference to you know, moral education and the game for the sake of the game, it was really a way of controlling who could play and how the game could be played. And so I don't think it's an accident that with that type of control built into the nature of the game, Rugby Union became the game of apartheid South Africa, of Vichy France, mm. and a, a number of authoritarian regimes mm. like that. Because it, amateurism gives people a way of controlling who can play the game and gives them the opportunity to exclude those they don't like. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Now, throughout the book, Tony, you reference rugby union's treatment of rugby league through the years, the strong arming, the use of friends in higher places, the double standards, the hypocrisy, all designed to undermine and suppress rugby league. I think listeners are familiar with these stories and behaviours. And to we rugby league people, it's a straightforward case. There's a history of injustice and a rugby league has spent the last 125 years fighting the good fight and claiming the moral high ground. But I assume rugby union people see it differently. Do they? How do they see this history and how do they justify their behaviour in the cold light of the 21st century? 
Well, I mean, you would meet very few people now in rugby union, even diehard rugby union fans, who would try and justify what rugby union did. And so, you know, and to be fair, a, a lot of rugby union fans are, are completely opposed to the way that rugby league was treated. I know he's retired now, but even Spiro Zavos, the uh, former rugby union correspondent of the Sydney Morning Herald, mm. attacked the French rugby union for not apologising for their part in banning rugby league under the Vichy regime in mm. 1941. So nobody really who's got any... Um, <laughs> any scruples uh, in rugby union will defend what happened at the time however then it was it was justified on the basis that well rugby union was an amateur game and it had to protect that amateurism from people who were opposed to amateurism mm. but it's quite clear that that opposition to professionalism only extended to rugby league so mm. you know if you were an ex-professional soccer player even american footballer then it would have been quite possible to play rugby union and the the rugby union international board was quite clear that their rules on professionalism against professionalism were only ever intended to apply to rugby league mm. so you'd get the absurd thing here in yorkshire where if you wanted to join a rugby union club you had to sign declarations saying that you were not a rugby league player never had been a rugby league player uh, in order for your membership to be accepted. The other thing I think that's very interesting saying this is a you know, historian of all sport is that that is absolutely unique in world sport. No other sport applied such sanctions mm. to something that's seen arrival. I mean, netball did not ban basketball players. <laughs> Field hockey did not ban ice hockey players. But <laughs> rugby union felt that it had the, the moral authority to be able to hand down this position. And the other thing that they did, obviously, is that they this had uh, tremendous effects on, on individuals who were banned for life from, in some cases, playing the game that they'd grown up and loved. So the only non-rugby league player mentioned in the book is a guy ironically called Tom Brown mm. who played for Bristol in the 1920s who had lunch with uh, I think it was Warrington who wanted to sound him out about joining rugby league uh, he was the England fullback at the time England rugby union fullback and so he had lunch said no I'm not interested and then the story went back home the story leaked out and he was summoned before the rugby union who banned him for life for meeting with the rugby league and accepting the fact that they paid for his meal Mm. And he'd never even seen a game of rugby league, let alone played it. So, you know, looking back, a lot of this stuff seems very petty. You think, well, why did they bother? But it was absolutely central to the game. And it also had a terrible effect on a number of people's lives. It mm. shut them off from their friendship circle that was based around their rugby union club. It's also funny the contortions the rugby union went through to keep the facade of amateurism going when other parts of the United Kingdom were sort of flirting with professionalism or semi-professional tendencies. I love a quote in the book which relates to the way the Welsh Rugby Union's quasi-professional tendencies were handled by the RFU so they wouldn't switch to league. Here's the quote, as long as the Welsh clubs pretend not to pay their players, the RFU would pretend to believe them. That's a beauty. Yeah, and that's how it was. I mean, I think that's the other thing about amateurism. It's essentially organised hypocrisy mm. because unless you're very rich, it's impossible to play a game at highest level without being paid or without receiving some compensation for the time you lose at work. And mm. clearly, certainly in a place like South Wales, where the game's played amongst all classes and there's very deep roots in the industrial working class, then players had to be paid. You know, and you see the same hypocrisy in New Zealand, Australia and South Africa as well, and especially in France, where it was an open secret that players were paid and given jobs. Mm. And even in the 1970s, rugby league players were openly recruited to play for rugby union clubs were strictly against rugby union rules. And that hypocrisy 
leads to cynicism that the Rabin authorities would simply dismiss this when they knew for a while it was going on, but deny that it happened. So far from being a morally superior way of organising sport, amateurism actually led it to become utterly morally compromised, and especially in the 1980s and early 1990s, Mm. dealing with apartheid South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Tony, all rugby league fans want to see rugby league prosper and most want to see the game's footprint expand beyond the current stronghold. So I'm interested in the ingredients that could make rugby league prosper in various markets. Now, a good case study, of course, is the different paths UK and Australian rugby league have taken in the past century and what that says about those societies. Obviously, rugby league being an outwardly working class game, in theory, is always going to be up against it as the upper and ruling classes have the power and are very good at keeping it. So why has rugby league become mainstream in Australia, but not in the UK? Is it too simplistic to say it's due to the way class manifested or manifests in the respective societies? Yeah, to some extent, because obviously Australia's self-image of itself is it's a more open and democratic country than Britain. And that's where rugby league sees itself. And in the early 1900s, when Australia still saw itself as part, in a sense, part of Britain, certainly part of the British Empire, rugby league offered both that sense of egalitarianism and that sense of Britishness, which no other sport really could do in the same way. Mm. But there's also, you know, basically the simple fact that rugby leagues quickly outstrips rugby union to become the dominant code on the eastern seaboard before the First World War. And once in a position of dominance, it's difficult for a sport to lose that. Mm. The other problem that there is in Britain, it's not simply the establishment game of rugby union closing doors to rugby league. There's also the fact that soccer is a juggernaut Mm. that crushes everything in its way. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems that the game had after the 1895 split was that soccer started to come into traditional rugby areas in Yorkshire and Lancashire. I mean, it's almost uh, inconceivable now, but originally Liverpool and Manchester were seen as hotbeds of rugby rather than soccer, which Mm. they are today. And living inside Sheffield, professional soccer in West Yorkshire didn't come until the 1900s, 40 years after rugby had been established. So Leeds United or Leeds City, as it then was, Hull City, Huddersfield Town, uh, Halifax Town, these clubs were founded in rugby league towns uh, from the mid-1900s. So in Britain, rugby league had that double threat. Mm. And also, it's also in Britain, sports are pretty much locked into where they were immediately before the First World War. They've no sports sort of massively expanded beyond Mm. its kind of geographical or social roots that were there then. So rugby league, when it tries to expand in Britain, suffers from the fact that people already have preconceptions about sport. Mm. And, uh, you know, just as we rugby league fans think rugby league represents much more than just 13 players aside and the way the game's played, it represents Mm. kind of almost like an outlook on life in a sense or Mm -hmm. an attitude towards life. Well, people in other sports have that as well. And they, all because of the nature of British society, that also includes an attitude towards rugby league, which is seen still today as working class, blue collar, mm-hmm. based in the industrial north. Uh, it's not seen as fashionable. Certainly over the last 25 years since Union went professional, then Union is very much seen as a fashionable, trendy bandwagon that people want to be part of. And they mm-hmm. come with the World Cup and all the rest of it. So, so rugby league in Britain... It's kind of hemmed in, I think. Mm. And I think that makes it difficult to expand at a professional level because if we try to establish a team in Birmingham, the second biggest city in Britain, the problem is there's already three professional soccer teams there. Mm. 
there's rugby union embedded in the schools as well. So that's very difficult. And that's not to say, you know, there's a great job being done at lower level by clubs like, uh, just to take one example, Coventry mm-hmm. uh, or the old goals in, in Cheltenham and places like that. But to try and make the game more than just a game for its fans and give it some resonance in wider local society, that's extraordinarily difficult mm. because, you know, it's about how people interpret the world and view the world and it's very difficult for them to change that view mm. so my own uh, my own personal view is that the most exciting things and the way that the game will develop is outside of Britain I think Toronto Wolfpack is the model to be followed that mm. the game should have a strategic plan over the next 5-10 years and say these are where we want clubs let's talk to people who can establish clubs and you know it seems that there's some appetite in North America to do this it's also a place where there's no preconceptions about rugby. Mm. Um, unless you're already a, a nailed-on rugby union supporter, so then you know nobody cares about whether it's rugby league or rugby union or what the history is. People just want to see a good game, an exciting game, and they also want to have a team that represents their city. Mm. And I think that's the other thing that's very interesting about Toronto, in that a lot of ways, the sort of civic pride that led to the growth of clubs in the north of England, that, you know, I think I've got caught in the book where somebody in, in Halifax says, well... We saw that Huddersfield and Leeds and Bradford had their clubs, and so we wanted a club to challenge them and show <laughs> and show how good we were. Yeah. Well, that still exists in a lot of North American cities, and that you know, if you are in Toronto, you support all the Toronto teams. You don't say, "Well, I'm not watching that because it's baseball or it's soccer." Mm. People get on board with the club, whatever the sport is, and I think that's where rugby league can capitalise because that great sense of community and civic pride that rugby league clubs have mm. is something that despite the fact that they're very different societies, something that people in Canada and the United States can understand and can, can latch onto. Mm. So, you know, I think that the prospects for the game lay outside areas that have strong rugby, either league or union traditions. That's very uh, interesting. Yeah, we're not fighting against built-in deeply and long-held prejudices uh, yeah. or biases against the game. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? A lot of people in the UK, I notice, they're convinced, because as rugby league fans, we're, we're convinced it's a great sport to watch and it's a great spectacle, and a lot of people in the UK seem to be convinced that if only they could market it better, then, of course, everyone would come on board. But, of course, as you just outlined, there are so many barriers to that. And also, that's the same for Australia. Fans in Australia look to the UK and go, well, why isn't it stronger? But you just outlined why that is. And of course, with Toronto, we can only hope the current economic crisis doesn't stall that progress that we've seen. Obviously, international travel will be halted for a while, so we hope that this isn't the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Toronto Wolfpack. Now, Tony, of course, we're a podcast based in Australia, and your book, while focused on the UK, also covers happenings elsewhere, including Australia, New Zealand, and France. On the Southern Hemisphere, can you tell us the significance of the 1905 New Zealand All Blacks Rugby Union touring team in eventually getting rugby league up and running in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, it's something that's not really appreciated, I don't think, by rugby league people. The, the impact that the 1905 All Blacks had for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, firstly, because it was a wildly successful tour financially. Mm. Uh, they made over £9,000. I don't know what that translates to now, but it's a huge amount of money, certainly more than any, any other tour inside had ever made. But when they got back home, none of that money went to players. And a lot of the players were ended up in debt because they'd have to give up their jobs for the eight months they were on tour. I think for some of them, they didn't even have a job to come back to. Mm. But because of rugby union's amateur regulations, they had nothing to fall back on. So that created a lot of tension. There was also a lot of tension in general in New Zealand and Australian rugby union 
over setting over payments, also the way the game was played. Both countries favoured a much more open handling game, you know, in contrast to the forward based game that the English, the Scots, and the South Africans favoured. Mm. So all sorts of simmering things under the surface. And then what really brought it to a head in Australia was the, the fact that New South Wales Rugby Union abandoned its insurance scheme in 1907, while at the same time voting to give its secretary a, a salary of £250, which is like a, huh. just giving the finger to the players mm. uh, in the most wretched way possible. And so there was a lot of discontent in Australia, and the All Blacks, there was clearly something going on amongst returning players from the All Blacks. They got back to New Zealand well, it would have been the autumn in the Southern Hemisphere of 1906. And almost immediately, it seems that uh, people started talking about what they're going to do. Some of them would have been aware of the Northern... Well, in fact, all of them would have been aware of the Northern Union because if you look at the newspapers at the time, there's a huge amount of coverage of British sports. Mm. Also in New Zealand, there was a guy called George Stevenson based in Otago who had actually lived in Bradford and played for, for the Manningham Club, which is a, a club in the city centre of, of Bradford. That was mm. both before the split under rugby union rules and after the split under northern union rules and he was very well connected with the game and he even wrote at least one article where he says that in fact if you look at the way the game is played and the way it's organized then new zealand rugby is much closer to northern union rugby than mm. it is the rfu's type of rugby so by the time you get to march 1907 there's an organisation, effectively there's an underground organisation that's headed by a guy called Albert Baskerville. He was a leader of the, the breakaway to create a, a touring rugby league team, what he called the professional All Blacks, but was nicknamed by the Sydney Press the All Girls. Because mm-hmm. uh, again, in a kind of biased way to try and say, oh, they're only interested in money, they're not interested in playing the game for the game. Right. Which is an accusation never levelled against the, the officials of the game mm. who were paid. And so Baskerville was a public face of this underground movement, if you like. And they signed up players. It's probably the case they were in touch with players from Australia, but certainly by the time you get to the winter of 1907 in the Southern Hemisphere, there's clay contacts. And so when Baskerville's uh, professional All Black team leave New Zealand, they stop in Australia and they play three games and recruit Daly Messenger, who comes with them on the British tour. So it's really, if the All Blacks had not toured in 1905 and made such a great amount of money, then the same thing would have happened eventually. Mm. But it wouldn't have happened so quickly because they could see uh, four of those 1905 All Blacks went with the 1907 rugby league mm. So they could see precisely what the potential was of professional rugby. The other thing about the 1905 All Blacks, I think, is that they played a brand of rugby that was much closer to the Northern Union. Mm. So apart from the Welsh clubs, they basically destroyed every other club in Britain and scored something like 1,100 points wow. against a handful. But the interesting thing was that most of those were tries. I think they only kicked uh, something like five penalty goals and mm-hmm. kicked three drop goals. Wow. Uh, the stats might not be precise, but it's something like that proportion, which you, even today, when rugby union is a much more open game than what it's ever been, the idea that a tour inside would only kick five penalties <laughs> is inconceivable. And so they were, effective, they were playing a very similar game to the rugby league clubs. And some of the things that had been initiated in northern rugby before the split such as the idea that when the forwards pack down in the scrum, 
each one would have a specific position, mm. which the All Blacks specialised in. And also they had this thing called the wing forward, whereby the one of the forwards would actually feed the ball into the scrum and the scrum half would remain at the back of the scrum to get the ball when it came out. Mm. That had also been, was one of the ideas that had first been developed in the north of England in the 1880s. So in a sense, a lot of the New Zealand tactics that they used had originated in the north of England in the, those areas that became rugby league areas. Mm. And so there's a, um, in a lot of ways, you have to wonder whether if the First World War hadn't have come in 1914, just at the time that there was turmoil in Australian and New Zealand uh, rugby, whether New Zealand itself given a bit more time would have had a much more deep going split that would have meant that rugby league would have been at least equal if not more popular than rugby union right what could have been fascinating stuff now tony of course we've done numerous episodes focusing on the game in france and have had mike rylance on a couple of times to talk about the infamous history of the game there so we won't go there today but there's a lovely little story i'd like you to share from your book around the french rugby league pioneers led by jean gallia they arrived in England in 1934, never having played rugby league before, to undertake a tour that would lead to the game kicking off in France. And there they were in Leeds at the beginning of the tour, everyone nodding their heads, but no one could speak each other's languages. It was all a little awkward. And then a 14-year-old boy stepped up to the plate. Who was he? Yeah, that was really interesting. It's it's a guy called Harry Jepson who who died four years ago, I think. And Harry Harry had been born in 1920 in Hunslet, and Hunslet at that time was a to describe it as a hotbed of rugby league would be to do it a disservice. Mm. And he lived until he was 96. He was involved in the Hunslet Schools Rugby League. He was, became a teacher. Then he was on the committee of the Hunslet Club itself. And then when it collapsed in the late 60s, early 70s, he was kind of poached by Leeds, their board of directors, and became president of the club. Mm. Uh, I think he was also president of the Rugby Football League, he was very involved in all sorts of initiatives, and even has a trophy named after him, the Harry Jetson Trophy. Mm. But... At the time, uh, he was a rugby league mad schoolboy. He was it's academically bright, good at his lessons and could speak French. And so when the French turned up, this is incredible news. And they had a lot of people who would go and see them train. They went from France, stayed in Leeds. They trained at the Headingley ground. And as far as I can tell, Mike Rylance may know slightly more about this than me, but there weren't many people involved in rugby league who could speak French. And so when the team arrived, uh, I suspect John Wilson, who was the secretary of the rugby league, and that his sporting career had been as cyclist and had been in the 1912 Olympics and knew people in France. So I suspect he had some French, hmm. but not many other people had. And so Harry always told a story that you know, he said, shake the hand that shook the hand of Jean Gallier. <laughs> so he was in the crowd and the French had finished training and the schoolboys went on the pitch as they did at Headingley right until the early 1990s actually you could still do it after a match and so Harry could speak to Jean Gallier and started talking to him in French and it was the first time that Gallier had ever been spoken to in French by an English rugby league fan and so there's that nice sort of uh, historical continuity that Harry carried on those traditions the other thing that Harry also had was that he knew a guy who was chairman of the Hunslet Club Joe Luthwaite who mm. had actually been at the 1895 meeting that broke away from the rugby union. Right. Yeah, so when Harry died in 2016, we lost the last living link of anyone who had met someone who had been at that 1895 meeting. So I felt it's a great story to put in just to emphasise that continuity mm. and how deep that history runs, not just in books, but in, you know, in the people who are within the game and their memories that they keep. Exactly right. Now, Tony, as we know, Rugby League has a proud history of inclusion. It's in its DNA. And as you say in the book, the launch of Rugby League was, and I quote, a declaration of principle. 
every rugby player would now be able to play the game to the fullest extent of their talent and ability, regardless of their occupation, background or status. Equality of opportunity was at the very core of the new organisation. But, now this is me talking, but one of the strange contradictions about rugby league's history of inclusion in the UK is that it's not necessarily reflected in the sports fan base. The rugby league fan base in Australia has changed over the years and is quite multicultural, particularly in Sydney, reflecting demographic shifts. But the same doesn't seem to have happened in the UK. You quote a really interesting piece of research from the 90s which found in Leeds there were more black British players playing professional rugby league on a weekend than there were black fans in the stands across the competitions. That's quite amazing. Is that sort of thing still reflective of reality? And if so, why? Yeah, sadly. I think there's... It's... For a number of reasons, I think, because rugby league's always been welcoming to players, regardless of their backgrounds. But in in communities in the north of England, it's not carried that same principle through to the same extent. So, I mean, for example, if you go to you know a number of towns in the north of England, Bradford, Keighley, Halifax, there are very strong, very large Asian communities mm. who came to came to the north of England to work in the textile industry in the nineteen sixties. Uh, and the game has not been good in trying to integrate those communities or opening its doors to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partly because whilst there is that tradition of openness on the field, the game is also very parochial and can be very insular. I think that, in a sense, that's the flip side. And it, it tends to keep people at arm's length in some circumstances. Mm. So that, that is a problem. The game should be doing a lot more to counter that. I mean, having said that, it's still the case that um, the only British-Asian international in the football codes mm. was Ikram Butt, the Leeds-based rugby league player. You know, and that's compared to soccer, where there's been no British-Asian, English-Asian uh, soccer internationals and very few professionals anyway. So, right. you know, in a sense, that's a one-off. But nevertheless, I think it demonstrates something. So I think the game needs to do more. And I think because it's kind of, in a sense, sometimes lays back on its laurels and says, well, you know, we've always had black players, so what's the problem? Whereas, yeah. you know, this is something that you've got to work out all the time. Mm. And the, the other issue that it has, of course, is that it's competing with soccer, yeah. by and large. And if you want to integrate into British society, by and large, you do that through soccer because, you know, it's yeah. just so huge. It dominates the sports agenda as well as much of the news agenda. Mm. Uh, and also, soccer is the global game. You don't have to play soccer to know how it's played basically yeah. and so it suffers from that but I think this is one of the that lack of integration with with black and Asian communities and also other European communities who have moved to Britain over the last 20 years is an issue that gave me tackle because that's what Britain is saying. that's the demographics of the country and if you want to be a sport that's going to thrive in the future then you need to be part of that yeah now Ellery Hanley is an example of the best of rugby league inclusion, an incredible player who helped dispel the myth that black players were only useful in certain supporting roles, be it in the engine room of the forward pack or as a flying three-quarter. He dominated across several positions, including at 5'8", and eventually also became the first black person to coach a British national team. I'd like to quote a passage from the book. Hanley's feats were so immense that if he played any other sport than rugby league, he would have been nationally hailed for what he was, the greatest black British athlete of all time. And that's huge praise, which would fill rugby league people with pride, but it also reflects the sad truth that for various reasons, rugby league hasn't been able to penetrate that much in the UK. Can you give us an idea, though, of the significance of Ellery Hanley in the history of the game? Yeah, I mean, I did think long and hard before writing that, because as you say, it's a big claim to Mm. make, but I think it's the case that no other black British athlete dominated his or her sport in the same way that Ellery Hanley dominated rugby league. Mm -hmm from the mid-1980s to the 1990s. And not only that, had as big a reputation in Australia as what he did 
in Britain for basically playing eight games from Balmain <laughs> in 1988. And if you look at other great, great black British athletes, look at Linford Christie won the Olympic 100-meter medal, then Christie would not be, despite his you know, fantastic athlete, mm. you know, the equivalent would be that he would be seen as one of the greatest sprinters of all time in America, for example. But that, that's not the case. So I think it is true that for Ellery. Looking back, I mean, I remember in... Um, uh, 1985 he became the first player for 25 years to score 50 tries and it's more than 50 tries in the season mm. and at the time the excitement around that the, it, it was thought that nobody would ever score 50 tries in the season partly because there were less games played also because obviously defences you know, get tighter and tighter over, over the years mm. And so it was incredible that he could you know, just need to be able to score at will. I mean, I think the feeling must have been the same as when Huddersfield's Albert Rosenfeld scored 80 tries in 1913. You know, you just, you think, he can't score anymore. Surely he just kept doing it. And he did that playing, as you say, 5-8 and a bit of centre. Mm. And then he went to Wigan, switched to loose forward, then scored 60 tries in the season. <laughs> Dominated the Wigan team, led the Wigan team, then had this unbelievable stint with Balmain mm. which bit of personal history uh, at that time the New South Wales Rugby League matches you could only watch in Britain on video cassettes from your local video store so this shows oh, how really? long ago it was <laughs> and so they'd be distributed and you basically have to queue up or put your name down on the waiting list of, the, of your local video store <laughs> to get one of the video cassettes to watch and so we'd get them I think they'd arrive in Britain like four days after the weekend in Australia Right. and so you'd basically rush down to the video store and there'd be another half dozen rugby league fans in the queue to get the, uh, <laughs> the videos and you'd see Ellery doing this and you know, it's just absolutely staggering and again it was that thing you know is he going to do it again in another match and he continued to do it and do it yeah. uh, until the final when Terry Lamb took him out mm-hmm. um, but I think you know there are so few players who give you that type of excitement you know what are the players that you stand up for when they get the ball? Mm. And Ellery was one of them, but he was also one of those players who you look at throughout the season to see what he's doing. You know, so I mean, he was made captain of Great Britain in 1987 by Malcolm Reilly when Malcolm was a coach, and there was just no comment on it at all. I mean, this is a time when black players had only been playing in the England soccer teams uh, since 1979. Right. And if a black player had been made captain of England at that point, it'd have been uh, national headlines and everybody would have been patting themselves on the back. But <laughs> when Ellery became captain, it was just a accepted he's the best player he's a leader yeah. uh, and then he became Great Britain coach for the 1994 Ashes series which, which is a very did. close a very close contest yeah absolutely I mean it was um, yeah Britain won the first one and then Australia won the second one and then the third one was still quite close until mm. uh, as usual Britain fell at the final hurdle but uh, we'll draw a veil over that <laughs> but his level of achievements in, in rugby league were absolutely staggering and I think if you use that as a template to look at other black British athletes then I don't think anybody really dominated before that time yeah. uh, in the same way that Ellery and, and a mark of his you know he became a, a household name across Britain people knew that Ellery Hammond was a rugby league player mm. to the extent that when the NFL set up their World League of American Football in 1991 I think 1990 mm. they symbolically signed Ellery to be their figurehead is that right yeah they started he never played a game mm. I, I don't think he ever even took any practice yeah. but uh, he was the public face of the London Monarchs as the, the team right. was called then Oh, there you go. Well, you know, Tony, a bit of personal history from myself. The first ever rugby league game that I remember watching is the 1988 New South Wales Rugby League Grand Final between Canterbury-Bankstown and the Balmain Tigers. I don't remember much about it at all. I was at my cousin's house in Bankstown, so everyone was going for the Canterbury-Bankstown side, but I remember supporting Balmain that day for some reason. 
can't remember why, probably the color of the jersey. I don't actually remember the moment where Ellery Hanley was taken out by Terry Lamb, and I've been looking for the footage ever since, and I don't really think it exists. One of the, the lower points of Ellery's career, but not his fault at all. Now, Tony, as an Australian reader, one of the most interesting parts of the book is how Super League came about in the UK. We obviously know all about what happened in Australia, but I didn't really know much about how it unfolded in the UK. As it turned out, it happened in a flash. It was comically messy. It was the product of being a pawn in the Packer Murdoch TV war going on in Australia, but it changed rugby league in the UK, in particular as it became a summer sport. On balance, do you think the move to summer has been a net gain or a net loss for rugby league in the UK? Uh, good question. I think it's probably been a net gain. I mean, partly because a lot of the factors that led to Super League were already in play in British rugby league from the 1980s. Like mm-hmm. the idea that there should be a move to summer was actually very well established and yep. may well would probably have happened anyway. And again, to this in the book, there's also a whole bunch of financial problems that surrounded the game in the 1980s and, and 1990s. So I suspect that radical change would have come into the game and it would have switched to summer regardless of Murdoch. But obviously they didn't jump, they were pushed because of what was going on in Australia. And in a sense, the fact that Britain became an adjunct to the Super League War down under was a reflection of the change in fortunes of Britain, Australia and Rugby League over the previous 30 years. Because traditionally Britain had been the dominant partner and had been the arbiter on the rules and had been deferred to by the Australians until the 1960s. Mm. But obviously that started to change, and particularly in Australia in the 1960s, the game underwent a boom. The game in Britain went precisely the opposite, went into a deep depression mm. that it took it the best part of a decade to get out of. Mm. And so by the time the British game was back on its feet in the mid to late 1970s, the standard of play in Australia you know, was far better than what was going on in Britain. So mm. in 1979, the Lions toured and were just defeated abysmally 3-0. Mm. And then the Kangaroos came in 1982, and uh, in one of these strange combinations of feelings, Britain were embarrassingly defeated very, very easily and only scored one try in the entire Test Series. Mm. Yet all British fans were amazed at how the Kangaroos played. And in a sense, that signified what was what was happening to the game. So by the time you get to 1994, again, there's a bit of an underground movement going on, emanating from Brisbane about challenging the, the Sydney club's dominance over, the, over well, what was then New South Wales rugby. Britain is is kind of marginal to that, has no say. And, and you can tell when you read accounts of what happened in the run-up to the Super League and when, it, uh, when the Super League war broke out in Australia, then you know Britain's not even a factor. Mm. It only becomes a factor later on when the ARL, Ken Arthurson and the ARL, start trying to trade on the fact they're the only players you can play international rugby league mm. uh, as a way of countering News Limited's unlimited money offer. <laughs> and so the Murdoch organisation signs up, uh, well, not just Britain, but also pretty much all the other countries, but in Britain it's the, the biggest prize that they take. So the British are pushed, but they do it in a way which has become fairly typical of British rugby league, that they gather together, have a meeting, Murdoch offers £77 million, and they vote immediately to accept. <laughs> and according to people who were at the meeting, it was Maurice Lindsay, who was the, then the chief executive of rugby league and former chief executive of Wigan, and said, no, 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 you can't just accept it. It's the first rule of negotiations that you don't accept the first <laughs> offer. And so they said, oh, right, 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 so go away and try and negotiate more money. And of course... They come out of the meeting and suddenly realise what they've done and they've voted for something that most of them don't really agree with. So they, the initial proposal was that clubs should merge, so there'd be one club in, in Hull, mm. that Warrington and Witness would merge. 
and basically all historic rivals would merge and form joint clubs, which was never going to happen. Mm. So there's lawsuits are taken out against the agreement, people that want it. Uh, eventually it all settles down and Morris goes back to News Limited they come back with a further £10 million and the thing goes ahead but it's still well it's not the same as in Australia in terms of the bitterness and the long lasting impact that it had on the game there's still a lot of ill feeling particularly for fans of clubs like Keithley and Featherstone who felt that they'd been deliberately excluded mm. by the big clubs and taking part in Super League so yeah so when Super League came something like it would have probably happened but it would have taken a lot longer and it probably would have been more messy, but not quite as traumatic. Mm. You know, and I think you have to say that when you look at the state of the game now, then it's not doing great guns. You know, there are problems of direction and lack of leadership within the game at the top professional level, at Super League level, mm. that have yet to be addressed. The game doesn't have a strategy. It's not sure where it's going or what its future strategy is. So you, you can tell by all the debates over whether Toronto should be in Super League or not, mm. which, you know, seems to be, to me, is a non-issue. So it suffers from that. But on the other hand, you know, attendances are still, despite that they've gone down over the past few years, they're still healthier than what they have been for probably about 60 years. Mm. And, you know, the game is played strongly at an amateur level across the country. So whilst the general impression, I know people in Australia think, oh, the game's on its knees and everything, mm. uh, because of the way that the game is covered, and also because, you know, rugby league people tend to be manic depressives when it comes to the game anyway. I <laughs> know uh, it's going to die. Uh, you know, I was once going to do a paper on the rugby league is about to die theme, which has been going on ever since uh, the first week of September 1895. There's and your so, next book, you know, Tony. People, yeah, that's true, yeah. So, but yeah, for rugby league people, by and large, the glass is always half empty. It's never half full. Yeah. But yeah, I think on the whole, it's been a positive. And I think uh, initially I wasn't a, a 100% nailed on support of the move to summer rugby, but I think I finally became a complete supporter of it. Maybe the early 2000s where I'd gone to watch a match at Headingley on a very warm, sunny summer Saturday afternoon. Mm. And there was a great match, big crowd. Everyone was wearing shirt sleeves, having a drink. <laughs> it was just rugby league as it's played in heaven. Uh, and that should be the goal. That's what every match should be like, basically. So, yeah. so I think it, on balance, and it has been a good thing. That's not to say it's not had its problems, but but yeah, it, it was a good move. Yeah. Now, Tony, as you say in the book, the rise of sport over time has been fueled by technology and media expansion, advances in transport, including cheap air travel, and increased capital to watch or invest in sport. Now, this crisis we're going through is going to affect all professional sport, but how worried should we be about rugby league in the UK in the context of the coming coronavirus economic crisis? What does the past teach us there? Well, firstly, the rugby league is completely inconsequential when faced with a pandemic and its impact. Sure. In terms of what it means for the game, I think it's too early to say. I mean, I mean, you, you'd be more familiar than I am with all the mm. debates on whether the NRL should start in May. Mm. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the long-term effects of the, the pandemic are going to be. Yeah until there's a vaccination or a cure found for it then to some extent there's going to be no return to what we previously thought of as normal mm. uh, having said that sport occupies a peculiar position in the entertainment industry that it's something that people value both as an entertainment and also as a sense of normality and a way of getting away from problems that they face in day-to-day life and mm. there's nothing better than when you've had a hard week at work, going out on a Friday night or a Saturday and shouting abuse at your team's opponents. Uh, so it takes your mind off it and it's something that brings in a sense of community and collectivity. So I think it's got that going for it, which may help it to find a way out of this in terms of support from governments, 
in order to resume play. What it means in terms of crowds, I think it's far too early to say because clearly, you know, if you're going to get, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20,000 people in one space and Mm. there's still a virus circulating, that's a very bad idea, a very bad thing to do. So I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen in general. I think it's even less clear with sport. Having said that, I think that British Rugby League is it's waiting to hear from the government about the support package. I think it's this week where they're going to find out. And it's it's got a watching brief over the potential to start. Uh, Britain's still in lockdown, and that's going to continue for at least the next... Uh, well, France has said it's going to be locked down until maybe 11, so mm. there's no way Britain's going to come out of lockdown before then. Mm. And, you know, by all accounts from people within the game, then the RFL has done a good job in talking to the government and trying to find find their way through. I think in, you know, in Australia, I think the NRL would be criticised whatever it did, whether... Yeah. It's said we're not going to play this year, we're going to start again. And I think that it will be denounced by the press. And if it says we're going to start in May, it's going to be denounced anyway. And it's partly a different subject, but I think partly because it's a, the NRL is just a punching bag for the Sydney media, basically. <laughs> so who knows? I think the main thing is that the game has to be alert and prepared for the potential to begin playing as soon as possible because of the benefits that that can bring to people's sense of well-being and community. However, health comes first, as it uh, as it always should have done and always will. Yep, absolutely. Now, Tony, you're an historian of great repute. I'd love your opinion on this. Is there a place for imagination in an historian's armory? Because I imagine sometimes there will be gaps in the records or the stories of people from the past is the role of the historian to fill those gaps or should historians just be kind of academic archaeologists uncovering bones from the past and chronicling what they see? Yes, there's a massive place for imagination. And by that, I don't mean making things up. Mm. A good historian is someone who we, we want to explain how things happened, firstly, but then we also want to explain why they happened, what was going on in society that meant that sport emerged in, in the late 19th century to become such an important part of life and society. Mm. And also we have to explain why it was the case of when it happened. Why did it happen then and not, you know, 100 years before, 200 years before, something like that. And those are really difficult questions. Mm. And to do that, you need to have a, as you said, an historical imagination. There's a great book that was written in the 1960s by a sociologist called C. Wright Mills called The Sociological Imagination. Mm-hmm which is a plea for sociologists. And C. Wright Mills was a kind of historical sociologist as well, so he understood history. Mm -hmm. But it was a plea for sociologists to try and get under the skin of their subjects so that they could use the, the facts of the case to figure out why people behaved in the way that they did. So they could, if you like, you have the facts of the situation, you know when things happened and you know how things happened, but the job of the sociologist or the historian in this case is to kind of connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Well, in what order the dots join together? So I think with sport, that is a, a very important aspect because to some extent we can say when clubs were formed, who played, what their backgrounds were. So, you know, some, in some cases that's been lost through history, it's been incorrectly reported. Mm. But I think the thing that is more difficult to understand because it's very rarely described in books is why did it take such a hold of people's imagination? Mm. If you went back to, um, pick a random year, go back to 1830, mm. why did people not support football or rugby teams or even cricket teams to some extent at that time? Mm. But 50 years later, 
it was this thing that everybody talked about it was all over the papers all over the press and I think that's where the imagination comes in because we have to understand what it must have been like for those people to go and watch these games that they suddenly felt part of that it's not just you're not just stood there watching a game of that has been played for somebody else's enjoyment. It's been played for your enjoyment, and you have, in a sense, as much investment as the players on the pitch mm-hmm. in the team that you identify with winning. And in some cases, you have more investment because players, obviously, they transfer, they move around, and for many, it's a job that they do. Mm-hmm. Whereas for a, a supporter, it's much more important than that. You know, a few people move around clubs in the same way that players move around clubs. And I think that's where the imagination comes in. What must it have been like to experience being in that crowd, hearing the crowd roar, cheer, boo, then talking about it in the pub afterwards, then opening the paper on the Monday morning, seeing the report. And I think that's the reason why these things become so important. I also think the reason why the historical imagination is important is because one of the things you alluded to earlier on, the things could have been different. A decision here, a decision there, mm. and the history of sport could have been completely different, and particularly the history of rugby league. There's a, you know, a number of sliding doors moments mm. in the history of the game where you think, well, if the opposite decision or a different decision had been made, what could that have led to? So. If rugby had have decided to go professional in 1886, this would have been amateur at a time when it was still probably slightly the more popular football code over soccer. Mm. Then would rugby have become the world's leading football code? If the rugby union would have accepted the Northern Club's proposals in 18 when they proposed broken time in the 1890s, would rugby remain united and would the, the rugby league evolutionary path have been followed by all of rugby? Mm. And then there's a more specific rugby league, uh, classic rugby league, what ifs in terms of opportunities for international expansion mm. uh, in Canada, America. Yeah, France. There's a great example in America in the summer of 1939, the RFL, which I've added to the book actually since I um, since the draft that you saw. Okay. Uh, in 1939, the Californian Rugby Union wrote to the Rugby Football League saying, we've decided to switch to, to play Rugby League rules. Can you send us some rule books and we'd love to meet with you and discuss what we can do in the future. And, you know, a fantastic opportunity because there was no governing body for a rugby union in America and it's divided between East Coast and West Coast. So California Rugby Union, and obviously it's much closer to Australia as well, lots of opportunities. But this was in, I think it was June 1939. And so before the RFL had an opportunity to do anything, in September 1939, World War II broke out. Mm. And so it lost that historic opportunity. But there's lots of other. You know, the idea that rugby league never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity (laughs) is a kind of, yeah, it's an example of using the historical imagination to think how things could possibly have been different or you know and, and that's not to say they could always be better if they were different they may have been worse mm. so. so yeah but yeah I agree the ability to understand why things happened at the time that they happened is part of having a, a, a historical imagination and that's very important in sport yeah. because all too often historians of sport just focus on their own particular codes or sports and don't understand the wider context of mm. how they're all interlinked now, what's the feeling like when you make a great discovery, Tony? Can you sleep that night? Do you tell anyone or do you keep it up your sleeve or under your blanket until you can get it published one way or another? Yeah, there's still, I mean, one of the things I like about being a historian is that basically a lot of it is detective work. Mm. And so you're really looking for, for clues to try and piece together 
a story or a narrative or a case in many ways. So mm. you know, you're using the same powers of detection in history as what you would as detected. Uh, and so, I mean, there are, there's a bunch of things that I can remember. I mean, one of the more recent things is that I noticed, uh, this is maybe two, three years ago, I noticed when I was reading a book on the history of college sports in America, university sport in America, that mm. there was a passing reference to a, a Mr. Baskerville of New Zealand who had written to one of the universities, uh, to, I think Stanford, in 1906. I thought, well, that sounds right. I'm going to send Mr. Baskerville, who, who started rugby league in New Zealand, Albert Baskerville. Yeah. And there was a reference to Yale archives in that. So I, I emailed Yale Library, and they were incredibly helpful. And said, oh, yeah, we'll send you the copies of the correspondence. <laughs> and these were copies of the correspondence that Albert Baskerville had written to Walter Camp, who was basically the, the main figure in the early years of American football and was the, the man who would be the guardian light in the development of American football. Mm. And Baskerville had written to Camp to say, I'm really interested in your work, but I think that rugby will overtake football eventually in North America. And why don't you organise a team of American footballers to come over and play rugby? And I'll coach them. Mm. And, and Camp, because you know, he was the, the patrician leader of American football, just wrote a polite letter back. But So this is really fascinating. Baskerville also wrote to the, the head of Stanford, basically saying the same thing. And so it's clear that and they, nobody had ever seen these before. And the, the book that I saw the initial reference in, you know, didn't know who Baskerville was, but there's no reason why they should. And so that was a fantastic discovery. And it kind of added more to the basketball story that he was kind of, he was looking at the rugby games because American football is a variation of rugby or wasn't, certainly wasn't that time. Mm. He was looking at rugby in terms of how it would develop globally before he'd seen the opportunity to get involved in rugby league. So, so I thought that, that was one of the things that, even after all these years writing about the history of rugby, you still find something new mm. and there's still surprises. How did that make you so, feel? Uh, I do it's, it's just great. It just rekindles the enthusiasm yeah. uh, that I had for doing this. Because I always remember when I first started doing the serious research into what became Rugby's Great Sport, mm. uh, because I used to I used to work in the centre of Leeds and go to Leeds Library, which is about you know, five minutes' walk from where I worked, and spend mm. you know, three hours going through old newspapers. Mm-hmm. So at the end of some of those evenings looking through old newspapers and actually being able to reconstruct the story of what was going on before the split. It really was like being a, uh, uh, discovering a new land, uh, one of the Polynesian sailors coming across a new island in the Pacific <laughs> that nobody would ever seen before. Yeah. yeah, and also I think it's kind of, for me as someone who grew up with the game and for whom it meant a lot to my family and to the community, it felt like I was giving something back, that I was telling their story. Mm. So, uh, in one example of that is that in, uh, in Rugby's Great Split, one of the examples I used to show how important the link between local industry and the rugby team was, was, in, was to use the example of Hull, and uh, when there was a, a downturn in the shipbuilding industry in the 1890s, Hull lost something like 700 season ticket holders mm. because so many of their fans worked at one of the big shipyards in Hull called Earl's Shipyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when trade was down, people couldn't afford to go and watch a match. And it was only later when my dad read the book that he said, oh, that's, I th- thought that was interesting about El Shipyard because his grandfather came down from Newcastle in no. the early 1900s to work in El Shipyard, uh, which is where the family got the rubber link mm. bug. So, um, so stuff like that, yeah. it, it kind of it brings it full circle that you're sort of writing the history of what becomes a, an international global phenomenon, but there's also a deeply personal link there. And I, think, I suspect that's, that's true for a lot of people in the game as well, if, if, they, were, if they had the opportunity to, to dig like that. Mm. 
Well, I mean, Tony, your enthusiasm continues to come through in spades. So we're very lucky to have you and very lucky to have you on the show. So I've taken up more than enough of your time today. So thank you for being so generous with your time and in sharing your insights with our listeners. I know there will be plenty of listeners who will be marking the release date of your book in their calendar. Can you remind us of when the book might be released? The aim is for July, but obviously given the current situation, that might not be. We might not be able to adhere to that as closely as possible, but it will definitely be out in in the next few months. So I'll let everybody know when it's out, and I'd be interested to hear what people think about it as well. Wonderful, Uh, wonderful. You know, it's it's my contribution to the game. Wonderful. Well, congratulations once again on a marvellous book. And Tony Collins, thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Progressive Rugby League. Hope you enjoyed that chat, ladies and gentlemen. That was a real joy for me to do. Okay, let's call it a day, shall we? Thanks, everyone, for your ongoing support of the podcast. Big Al and I really appreciate it. Take care of yourselves, and until we meet again, Rugby League. Oh, See ya. And as Big Al would say, in Rugby League we trust. <laughs>